0: Good afternoon, hello, I'm Christopher Preble, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. Um, Thank you all for being here today. Uh, And thanks as always to our conference staff here at Cato who help out with all these events. They had a really big one yesterday, so they turned it around quickly. So uh, we do appreciate their help. And welcome to those of you watching online at www.cato.org. As the Cold War wound down, the United States initiated a new conflict, a war for the greater Middle East. In fact, as Andrew Bacevich explains, the war started a full 10 years before the Cold War ended. Uh, From the Balkans and East Africa to the Persian Gulf and Central Asia, US forces embarked on a series of campaigns across the Islamic world with no end in sight. And the book is therefore aptly titled, America's War for the Greater Middle East, A Military History. Uh, In it, Professor Basevich connects the dots of a sweeping narrative from episodes as varied as the Beirut bombing of 1983, the Mogadishu firefight of 1993, the invasion of Iraq in 2003, and the rise of ISIS in the present decade. Indeed, Basevich claims that America's costly military interventions can only be understood when seeing the seemingly discrete events as part of a single war. Is he right? Or are America's military adventures in the Middle East discrete occurrences driven by the unique circumstances of the moment? Is it really one big, long war or many shorter ones? We're going to examine this and other questions today, and I'm thrilled to welcome Andy back to Cato. Uh, It's the first D.C. uh, venue to host a discussion of his book, which is I guess formally just released last week. Uh, Then again, after reading it, uh, it's fairly obvious that few other D.C. institutions would host him. Uh, Among the people and organizations that Andy singles out for SCORN are the following. Wes Clark, NATO, the Republican Party, Tommy Franks, and Hamid Karzai, or many others. I asked myself many times as reading this book, does anyone emerge with his or her reputation intact? I wonder. Uh, but Andy Bacevich's, uh reputation uh, does emerge intact. I've been a fan for over 10 years. In fact, we hosted, I checked, uh, to kind of refreshed my memory, we hosted Andy here in May of 2005, so nearly 11 years ago, to discuss his book, The New American Militarism, which was then and remains one of my favorite books. Uh, and he is one of my favorite writers. And then reading this book, America's War, the greater Middle East reminded me why he is my favorite writer. He's a regular commentator in the op-ed pages and his insights and his analysis, which is always sort of very clear headed and direct. uh, That part always comes through and and no difference in this book. But his skills as a writer, uh, which can often only be glimpsed in an 800 or 1,000 word op-ed are on full display here. I read this book while I was on vacation with my family. Uh, in Cancun, Mexico of all places, and uh, they're sort of accustomed to me with a uh, galley proof and pencil in hand, uh, you know, reading a book very carefully as they're reading John Grisham novels or my friends reading books on golf. Um, But uh, this time it was really a joy to read. Uh, And uh, just to give you a flavor, I I flagged, Andy has a real knack for useful analogies and evocative metaphors. I, I flagged at least a dozen. Uh, Here are two of my favorites, uh, referring to the military engagement in the Persian Gulf known as Praying Mantis, This is in uh, April of 1988. In action that had lasted all of eight hours, the forces had won a clear-cut tactical victory. That said, the event more closely resembled 1898's Battle of Manila Bay than 1942's Battle of Midway. So although Praying Mantis was subsequently celebrated as quote, the largest surface action since the Second World War, unquote, this was akin to designating the no-name Palooka reigning as today's heavyweight champ, the greatest fighter since Muhammad Ali. Even if accurate, such a claim serves chiefly as a reminder of how long it's been since a real champion has graced the world of boxing. Uh, And here's another. This is describing uh, President Obama's decision to leave troops in, a, in Iraq longer than his self-imposed deadline of 16 months. Uh, Obama had vowed to withdraw all U.S. combat troops from Iraq within 16 months of taking office. He agreed to a transitional force remaining after the U.S. combat role had officially ended. To provide the president with political cover, the Pentagon styled the stay-behind forces as, quote, advise and assist brigades. In reality, they would be standard U.S. Army combat formations augmented with a small advisory contingent. It was the equivalent of calling an aircraft carrier a hospital ship by adding a few nurses to the crew. Folks, this is a gift, okay? that This cannot be taught, so I, I am in awe. Enough, I, I might embarrass him, but I doubt it. Um, and Andrew J. Bacevich Sr. Uh, is Professor Emeritus of International Relations and History at Boston University and a former director of BU Center for International Relations. He previously taught at Johns Hopkins University and at West Point, where he graduated in 1969. He holds a Ph.D. in American diplomatic history from Princeton. And with the U.S. Army, he served during the Vietnam War and held posts in Germany and the Persian Gulf. He retired as a colonel in the early 1990s. He's the author of a number of other books, including Breach of Trust, How Americans Failed Their Soldiers in Their Country, The Limits of Power, The End of American Exceptionalism, and The New American Militarism which I mentioned before. He's also written for The Atlantic, Foreign Affairs, The New York Times, and many others, and he is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. With that, Andrew Basavich.
1: Well, thanks very much for uh, turning out. Uh, You know, writing a book, some of you know this, writing a book is really, really hard work, and the only thing that's harder is getting somebody to notice that you've written a book once the book comes out. So I'm traveling around the country trying to get people to notice I've now come to the only place in Washington that apparently will host me. And so I'm grateful for that. Everywhere I go in in talking about the book, I get asked uh, by somebody in the audience after I'm done. So, smart guy, what do you recommend we should do about ISIS? And in some respects, the purpose of this book is to suggest that that is the wrong question. The what should you do about ISIS is the wrong question. I'm reminded, uh, historical comparison here, I'm reminded of a situation that uh, we, the country, faced back in late 1967, early 1968. My, my classmate and friend Mike Nardotti is sitting here. Uh, we were like uh, yearlings going into cow year uh, at that time. And the big, the big question on everybody's lips at that time with regard to the Vietnam War was, can Quezon hold? And some of you will remember, Khe San, Marine garrison in the very northern part of South Vietnam, surrounded by at least two NVA uh, divisions, the Marines greatly outnumbered, press commentary all over the place, drawing comparisons with Dien Bien Phu, the famous battle in 1954, then a besieged and outnumbered French garrison, had surrendered. The result of that surrender was that the French were defeated, abandoned French Indochina. Here in 67, 68, people asking the question, is history about to repeat itself at Quezon? Well, in the event, the Marines did hold, and the United States lost the war anyway. In retrospect, it seems pretty clear that back in 1967 and 68, we were asking the wrong questions. Rather than in focusing on the fate of the garrison at Quezon, the American public should have been asking questions like these. Does the Vietnam War make sense? Is the Vietnam War winnable? If not, why are we there? And perhaps most importantly, does no alternative exist to simply pressing on with a policy that shows no sign of success? And I believe that's where we find ourselves today. What to do about ISIS is a non-trivial question, but it's not the most important question. I think it, it is of far lesser significance than questions like these. Does waging war across a large swath of the Islamic world make sense? Is that war winnable? If not, why are we there? And for the most important, powerful country in the world, is there no alternative? Have we no choices? So my book tries to provide an account of this war in the greater Middle East for the purpose of calling attention to these more fundamental questions. It's a history book. It's a narrative history, a military history. But it's a military history that has, I think, I hope, policy implications. It suggests, the book suggests that before answering the ISIS question, we should consider how we got where we are today, which necessarily requires evaluating what prior US military efforts in the region have yielded and at what cost. So my book tries to tell the story of an immense and ongoing military uh, enterprise, this war for the greater Middle East. My story starts in 1980. Why 1980? Because in January of that year, President Jimmy Carter, certainly our least bellicose president in the last half century, in January of that year, Jimmy Carter used the occasion of his State of the Union address to designate the Persian Gulf a vital US national security interest. In layperson's terms, the Persian Gulf now became a place that we would fight for. This Carter Doctrine, as it has subsequently come to be known, touched off the process of militarizing U.S. policy, uh, not only in the Persian Gulf, but across much of the Islamic world, landing the United States in, as Chris said, a condition of open-ended war. The narrative I told unfolds chronologically. It begins with the failed Iran hostage rescue attempt, which occurred 36 years ago this month, and it concludes with the now renewed Gulf War, by my count, the Fourth Gulf War, in which we have been been participants uh, over the course of the last four decades. The book, the book does conclude after about 400 pages. Alas, that war has not concluded and we can certainly expect that there will be more uh, campaigns to come. Good news perhaps for me, you know, by the time the paperback edition comes out, or if there is one, I'll be able to add another chapter and who knows, there might be a second or third edition at the, at the rate we're going. The book tries to answer four specific questions. First, what motivated the United States to act as it has? Second, what are the civilians responsible for formulating policy and the soldiers responsible for implementing policy sought to accomplish? What were they trying to do? Third, regardless of their intentions, what actually ensued? And fourth, with what consequences? In short, the book aims to link, uh, the book links aims to actions to outcomes. The central theme of my story can be briefly stated. A nation priding itself in having the world's greatest military, and we do have the world's greatest military, has misused its military power on an epic scale. It's not simply that we have not prevailed. Obviously, we have not prevailed. Rather, it's that through a combination of naivete, short-sightedness, and hubris, we have actually made things worse at very considerable cost to ourselves and to others. What has this war been about? Well, in a narrow sense, it began as a war for oil. Yet even from the outset, much, was at, much, much more was at stake than ensuring access to the cheap gas that fuels the American way of life. From day one, The larger purpose of America's war for the greater Middle East has been to affirm that we are a people to whom limits do not apply. Through a war that has now extended well into the 21st century, the United States has sought in the greater Middle East to validate or affirm the verdict and the outcome of the 20th century. As enshrined in our collective memory, that outcome, the outcome of the 20th century, testifies to American global preeminence, political, military, economic, cultural, ideological. It also asserts a claim to privileges, above all to freedom, abundance, and security. These define our birthright, so the vast majority of Americans have come to believe. Well, starting with the Iranian Revolution and the Soviet incursion into Afghanistan, both occurring in 1979, year before the Carter Doctrine, events in the greater Middle East have challenged such expectations. Following in their way came a series of developments, not least of all 9-11, suggesting that the so-called American century, that we hear references made to all the time, suggesting that the so-called American century might have been a fluke or, or worse, fiction. So the ultimate purpose of America's war for the greater Middle East has been to refute any such suspicions. Nominally, the US troops dispatched to invade, occupy, garrison, bomb, or raid various parts of the Islamic world since 1980 have sought to punish the wicked, protect the innocent, and spread liberal values. Their advertised purpose has been to liberate defend or deter, yet their actual purpose has been far more ambitious in my view. The real mission has been to sustain the claims of American exceptionalism that have long since become central to our self-identity, to bring into compliance with American purposes the revolutionaries, warlords, terrorists, despots, or bad actors of various stripes given to defiance. To employ the kind of jargon that's popular in this city, back in 1980, the United States set out in willy-nilly fashion to shape the greater Middle East. Given the conditions existing there, Employing military means to bring the region into conformity with American purposes has resulted in an undertaking of breathtaking scope. Over time, U.S. forces have been in action everywhere from Iran and Iraq, Lebanon and Libya, Somalia and Sudan, Bosnia and Kosovo, Afghanistan and Pakistan, Iran and Iraq. The list goes on. Indeed, the list keeps getting longer. Along the way, we tried overwhelming force and shock and awe. We invaded, occupied, and took a stab at nation building. We experimented with counterinsurgency and counterterrorism, regime change and decapitation, peacekeeping peacekeeping and humanitarian intervention, retaliatory strikes and preventive attack, even something that the Air Force called air occupation. US forces operated overtly, covertly, and through proxies, almost certainly. They went places, indeed things, about which we, the American public today, remains in the dark. Unfortunately, no administration, from Carter's to the present, ever devised a plausible strategy for achieving these ambitious American aims. Each, in turn, has simply reacted to situations it confronted. Nor has any administration made available the means needed to make good on the grandiose ambitions that it entertained. Indeed, On the U.S. side, one of this conflict's abiding qualities has actually been its paltriness. Today, the problems besetting the greater Middle East are substantially greater than they were when substantial numbers of U.S. forces first began venturing into that region. Indeed, ISIS offers but one example of the results. Now, we may argue and we may disagree regarding the underlying sources of these problems. But there is no arguing that US military efforts to alleviate the dysfunction so much in evidence have failed. To address the situation facing the United States in the greater Middle East, it seems to me there are really two plausible ways to employ American power. The first is is basically to wait things out, insulating yourself from the problem's worst effects while promoting a nonviolent solution from within. This approach requires patience and comes with no guarantee of ultimate success. And with all the usual caveats attached, this is the approach that the United States took during the Cold War. Wait them out. The second approach is more direct, it aims to eliminate the problem through sustained and relentless military action. This approach entails less patience but it incurs incurs greater near-term costs. And after a certain amount of shilly-shallying, it was this head-on approach that the Union adopted during the Civil War in crushing the Confederacy. In its war for the greater Middle East, however, the United States chose neither to contain nor to crush. Instead, it charted a course midway in between. In effect, the United States chose aggravation. With politicians and generals too quick to declare victory, And with the American public too quick to throw in the towel when faced with adversity, U.S. forces rarely stayed long enough to actually finish the job. Instead of intimidating, U.S. military efforts have annoyed, incited, and generally communicated a lack of both competence and resolve. In the ultimate irony, the circumstances ostensibly making the Persian Gulf worth fighting for in the first place have ceased to pertain. If today the American way of life still depends, whether for better or worse, on having access to plentiful reserves of oil and natural gas, then defending Canada and Venezuela should take precedence over defending Saudi Arabia and Iraq. Even so, shorn of its initial rationale, the war for the greater Middle East continues as if on autopilot, that the ongoing enterprise may someday end, that the troops will finally come home appears so unlikely as to be unworthy of discussion. Strikingly, in the middle of a presidential campaign, the prospect of the troops ever coming home goes unmentioned. Like the war on drugs or the war on poverty, the war for the greater Middle East has become a fixture in American life and is accepted as such. Among the factors contributing to the lack of any serious challenge to the war's perpetuation seems to me four stand out. One is the absence of an anti-war or anti-interventionist political party worthy of the name. The ongoing war has long since acquired a perfidious seal of bipartisan approval. And as such, the two major parties are equally disinclined to probe too deeply into this war's origins conduct, or prospects. A second reason for the war's perpetuation is that that politicians aspiring to high office find it more expedient to declare their support for the troops than to question the war's efficacy. So candidates in every election since 1980, emphatically in the present election cycle, every election since 1980, politicians have avoided anything like a serious debate regarding U.S. military policy in the Islamic world. Yes, a particular military campaign gone awry like Somalia or Iraq or Libya in 2011 might attract some attention but never the context in which that campaign was undertaken. So the war for the greater Middle East awaits its Eugene McCarthy or its George McGovern. A third reason for the war's perpetuation is that sadly, Some individuals and some institutions actually benefit from an armed conflict that drags on and on. Those benefits are immediate and tangible. They come in the form of profits, jobs, and campaign contributions. For the military industrial complex and its beneficiaries, perpetual war is not necessarily bad news. Finally, however, there is this. Thus far, at least, Americans themselves, appear oblivious to what is occurring. Policymakers having successfully insulated the public from the war's negative effects. In a fundamental sense, the war is not our concern. But here's the rub. In the 21st century, the prerequisites of freedom, abundance, and security are changing. Geopolitically, Asia is eclipsing in importance all the other regions of the world, apart perhaps from North America itself. And the emerging problem set, coping with the effects of climate change, for example, is global and will require a global response. Whether Americans are able to preserve the privileged position to which they are accustomed will depend on how well the United States adapts itself to these fresh circumstances. Now, amidst such challenges, the afflictions besetting large portions of the the Islamic world will undoubtedly persist. But their relative importance to the United States as determinants of American well-being will diminish. In this context, the war for the greater Middle East has become a diversion that Americans can ill afford. To fancy at this point, that the US military possesses the capacity to shape the course of events there is an absurdity. And indulging that absurdity further serves chiefly to impede the ability of the United States to attend to far more pressing concerns. Ultimately, the game that matters will play out here at home rather than in some far off place like Iraq or Afghanistan. Whether the United States is able to shape the greater Middle East will matter less than whether it can reshape itself, restoring effectiveness to self-government, providing for sustainable and equitable prosperity. In extracting from a vastly diverse culture, something to hold in common of greater moment than shallow digital enthusiasms and the worship of celebrity. Perpetuating the war for the greater Middle East is not enhancing American freedom, abundance, and security. If anything, it is having the opposite effect. And one day, the American people may awaken to this reality. Then, and only then, will the war end. When that awakening will occur, however, is impossible to say. For now, sadly, Americans remain deep in slumber. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Andy. Um, All right, now it's my pleasure to introduce our distinguished commentator, my friend and colleague, uh, Doug Bondow. Uh, Doug is a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. He specializes in foreign policy and civil liberties. He once worked as special assistant to President Ronald Reagan, and he was editor of the political magazine Inquiry. He writes regularly for leading publications such as Fortune magazine, National Interest, Wall Street Journal, and The Washington Times, and he speaks frequently to academic conferences, on college campuses, and to business groups. He's been a regular commentator on all the major television networks, and he holds a JD from Stanford University.
2: Well, it's a great honor to share the podium with Andy, who has, I think, been one of the extraordinary commentators on uh, the military and military affairs today. He's uh, you know, one of the people who can be counted upon to take uh, the usual suspects here in Washington to task, and it's difficult for them because it's much harder for them to dismiss his views, and I think that his latest work continues that tradition, I think very importantly. You know, my hope here is that to join him uh, in this event will help uh, afflict the comforted uh, here in Washington, so to speak, uh, something that really needs to be done, frankly, as much as possible. And when you read a book written by Andy, I think that you, know, you should expect to be challenged and also depressed. And I think the, the latest book is no exception. That what you will find is a story of hubris, of incompetence, of wishful thinking, myopia, partisanship, irresponsibility, and much more. That is a typical Washington story. What is extraordinary to me, I think, is the fact that we are looking at four decades of war, something that frankly appears to be endless That, you know, when you think back. Quite sobering to think that it has been four decades since we started down this path of war in the greater Middle East. I mean, going back to Jimmy Carter, you know, Afghanistan, I you know, remember when this suddenly became an issue where he was, I mean, a man I think of in many ways of great honor, but he told us he was shocked because Brezhnev lied to him and was amazed when the Soviets went into Afghanistan and, uh, you know, and then the tragic uh, problems with Iran and the, the rescue mission that did not rescue, and then the commitment to the Gulf. So the United States started out uh, you know, down this path without great success. Because under the president that I served, the U.S. was involved in Afghanistan in terms of promoting the Mujahideen, which we found, uh, I think, a definition of blowback ultimately in the way that worked out, uh, had his own issues with Iran-Iraq you know, during the debate over the going into the Iraq War and the, the discussion about Jacques Chirac as you know, being pro-Saddam and pictures you know, being shown to the French president, I, I really liked going back to a 1983 photo that showed a much younger Donald Rumsfeld in Baghdad meeting with Saddam Hussein as the U.S. was announcing its support with intelligence and ultimately reflagging tankers to help out Saddam Hussein in his war of aggression against Iran— of course, bombing Libya, though a very short thing, and then Lebanon itself. I was out of the administration at that point, and I have to admit, I looked at that and wondered, what on earth are we doing in the middle of that fratricidal civil war? But at least one could argue that these things were more or less limited in terms of involvement. You know, George H.W. Bush brought us back to Iraq, but again, we got out fairly quickly, something that Cheney at the time endorsed. Somalia, another rather short-term, if misbegotten, mission. Of course, Clinton continued uh, fairly constant involvement in Iraq, uh, Somalia and the Balkans, and then we moved on to George W. Bush, who really brought, uh, I think, to full fruition our involvement in the Middle East. And I'm I'm always struck by critics of President uh, Barack Obama, and there are many things which I'm happy to criticize the president on, but critics on the right who suggest that he has somehow weak need has brought America home, we are isolationist. When you realize that he twice doubled down in in Afghanistan, that he pursued the Bush policy in Iraq in terms of the schedule of withdrawal, that he's gotten us involved in Syria, that we got involved in that wonderful little uh, dance in Libya, we're busy using drones to bomb Yemen, to bomb Pakistan, to bomb Somalia. This is an isolationist. I keep trying to understand what definitions are. That it strikes me there's a, at least from my standpoint I would define isolationist slightly differently. That and there is no end in sight. Does anyone here really imagine that we're going to see in any time in the near future a stable, free, and democratic Iraq? We're going to see Westminster democracy in Central Asia out of Kabul. That we're going to see Syria rebuilt with uh, religious minorities joining hands with revolutionaries, to create a new state, that uh, even after the Islamic state is defeated, whatever that means, the question is then what? Where? That, uh, I mean, you go down the list, and I think what is striking, and Andy's book is very nice and kind of one after another, and that to me is what makes it so depressing is you simply look at each episode and, and come to the end of the chapter and say, oh my God, how did we get here? But if you look down at the list of American targets, the question is, which of those can we claim to be a success? In Afghanistan, I visited there twice. I went with a NATO delegation back uh, most recently in 2011. And among my favorite moments were, as we were being shown around by the brass, where a Marine Corps officer came up to me after, you know, kind of after we came out of a, a police academy where they were training Afghans to be police. And he sidles up to me and he says, are you the Cato guy? <laughs> And I said, Well, yeah. He said, Oh, great. Well, I'm a real fan of Ron Paul. I just wanted you to know, you know, everybody's selling you something here. And I said, Yeah, I got that. And he gave me his email for further. To, I mean, I think, okay, hey, this is a Marine Corps officer. I mean, he's right there. And then, of course, we're sitting in the van, and we were broken up. And so there were two of us in this little van, and everybody else had gone on. Some guy gets in the back. And I said, Oh, hi, how are you? And what do you do? He said, Oh, well, I I teach at the the, you know the Afghans to be cops, or at least I try to. I said, oh, well, what does that mean? He said, oh, you should try to teach people with an elementary education. And he kind of goes on and says, I didn't hear that. You know, an hour ago when I was being shown, I mean, the whole thing, you know, this kind of reality of a sense of tragedy of people who are very good and decent who wanted to live good lives completely disconnected with American policy and what the United States could hope to achieve with its military involvement. You know, the one one area where I think we may have made some progress is Iran, That, due to the courage of this president. One can criticize the the nuclear deal if you want, but at least this president on one country has pulled us back a step from military confrontation, which I rather like. But Lebanon, I visited Lebanon for the first time last year. There are still buildings there ruined from the civil war that ended a couple of decades ago. And if you look at today, it's been two years since they've had a president who's supposed to be a Christian. And the problem is they are split between the former Christian warlord, Zhajah, Zha, who is allied with the Saudis, and the former Christian warlord, Aoun, who is allied with Hezbollah. Now, if you want to work that one out and figure how we make democracy flourish and human liberty you know, emerge, uh, good luck. I mean, Iraq, I mean, who can not look at that and be horrified by the catastrophe that has emerged? Libya, again, thousands of ISIS warriors there, weapons loosed all over, collapse, Somalia, the Balkans, Syria, Yemen, Pakistan. Go down the list. The question is, what have we achieved? To me, what's striking is <clears throat> that all of these, to some degree or another, are failures and very likely to remain. And almost all of them, the U.S. has played a very significant role in at least making problems worse, certainly not making them better. And, of course, the U.S. is not the fount of every evil out there. I mean, Lebanon was a fragile, tragic country without American involvement. Saddam Hussein was a monster, and you know, I'm quite happy he's in the grave. The tragedy, however, is we, we find is U.S. military is not a very adept tool at humanitarian tinkering and remolding societies and peoples. And to my mind, reading Andy's book comes back, the the essential issue for Washington is the utter and complete inability to learn from mistakes or even to admit mistakes. Every president, since Jimmy Carter, has had the United States involved militarily in the region. Both parties, as Andy indicated, support American involvement there. Past failures could have been prevented but weren't new misadventures occur routinely. Without question, people advocate yet new interventions. The system seems somehow impervious to what Carl Rove dismissively denounced as the reality-based community. He uh, is quoted at the time anonymously in a New York Times Magazine article. It was a wonderful quote. It was the time the Bush administration was riding high after Iraq, where he said, well, you all, out in the reality-based community, We'll study what we are doing, and we will go and then create a new reality. And you in the reality-based community will then study that reality, and we will go out and create a new reality. Well, it turns out reality had a way of asserting itself with the Bush administration and the rest of us. And we certainly see that in today's presidential campaign. I am struck by the, if you listen to the Republicans, and look, I mean, I have worked for a Republican president, so it's not as if I'm particularly fond of Democrats. I find both parties these days rather horrid. But you listen to the Republicans, every problem we face internationally is Barack Obama's. Everyone. He's destroyed the military. He's taken U.S. forces home. He has conceded defeat in foreign countries and I keep waiting for them to explain who was the guy who invaded Iraq? Wasn't there some guy who blew up that country? Wasn't there some guy who botched the occupation? Wasn't there some guy who put a sectarian government in power and created essentially a civil war there? Wasn't there some guy who, with all the U.S. troops there, could not get a visiting forces agreement and agreed to bring them home? Wasn't There's some guy there, and I don't remember that being Barack Obama, it seemed to be somebody else. But it turns out every problem. ISIS would not exist if it was not for Barack Obama. Wait, what? You know, Christians would not be on the run in the Middle East if it wasn't for Barack Obama. Countries would not have fallen apart, extraordinary. There is absolutely no willingness to accept any responsibility. And of course, it's not just officials, so that's the biggest problem. It's Congress, it's activists, it's the media. Where is anyone demanding accountability for cakewalks that didn't occur, horrendous consequences that somebody has to be responsible? Where is the accountability? But the lesson for these folks is always more. More countries, more bombing, more troops, more interventions. And when called upon to explain past failures, they tend to get irritable. My favorite example is back November 2014, Samantha Power, was discussing why we should bomb, of course, Syria. I mean, kind of the latest target. It could have been some other country. It happened to be Syria at that time. And you wonder why. Now, look, Assad is a nasty guy, but this hardly sets Syria apart. I mean, remember our, our lovely allies in Saudi Arabia and others. But pose no threat to the U.S., no threat to Israel or other U.S. allies, no support for al-Qaeda or ISIS, actually a haven for religious minorities, including, I might add, the hundreds of thousands who fled from Iraq invaded by somebody, who I've forgotten whose name. The question is, why would we want to jump into a virulent, horrific civil war? And she was a little irritated, referring to Libya, which some of us were suggesting was not entirely a success. She said, there is too much of, oh, look, this is what intervention has wrought. I think we have to be careful about overdrawing lessons or ascribing to one particular action a whole set of consequences. Can you imagine judging somebody based on the impact of their policies? How outrageous. I mean, mean, can you imagine what would happen in Washington if we did that? I mean, what politician could act? What congressman would be reelected? What bureaucrat would make a decision? Why should we overdraw lessons? Why should we actually care what happened? To me, extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary, that we're simply pointing out the last 10 things you advocated have failed, so maybe we shouldn't do the next one. I've always imagined this, you know, when you kind of ponder the consequences of Afghanistan and Iraq and go down the list. You know, to me, it's kind of like, you know, it turns out your brother in law has investment ideas, right? And he shows up every so often, has this great new scheme. You know, put 5000 here. I know the corporate official. I'm a great deal. You know, you do it, and this one you lose everything. But, he come, yeah, but he's all, It's a good excuse. You know, I don't know. There was something that happened, and I'm OK. Comes in again, and this one, where well, you managed to barely get your investment out. Another one comes in completely hideous. You know, he, this happens about a dozen times. Now, if he came in again, what's your proper response? Oh, sure, I'll put more money into it. I mean, what could possibly go wrong this time? That seems to be our foreign policy. Never mind, nothing, you know, kind of that, you know, fun thing, you know, nothing to see here, you know, the cop shows, right? Move along, you know, nothing to see here, you know, mass murder in the background. Don't, 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 Don't bother yourselves. I think that the challenge here is we've, we have to recognize we have an extraordinary problem in the entire political system. Samantha Power, when she was justifying going into, she actually gave a speech on Syria, she commented within that every decision to use military force is an excruciatingly difficult one. The answer is for her, that's simply not true. And for most political officials in this town, it is not true. Everyone, they say yes. What decision do they seem to really find difficult? What country do they not want to invade? What country do they not want to bomb? What intervention do they not support? When do they step back and say, it hasn't worked well? It's you know, kind of trying to you know, engineer society is hard enough at home. But trying to do it abroad, ignore differences in culture, in history, in religion, in tradition, in geography, we can recreate, reform. Is this really possible? And to me, this is, this is what the, the basic lesson of Andy's book. That as he, he commented, and I think very importantly, the passing of the Vietnam syndrome, you know, showed us a heedless absence of self-restraint with shallow moralistic impulses overriding thoughtful strategic analysis. As a consequence, in debates over possible U.S. <clears throat> you know, armed intervention, you know, has given way to uh, why not. And I think to me that is the challenge. We have to be able to rebuild a question of, you know, justify as opposed to an assumption that we should go in. And I think the book is an extraordinarily important move for us to go in that direction. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Doug. Excellent, as always. All right, so I... um... I'm gonna take advantage of my prerogative as, uh, as moderator and just pose a, a, a comment to Andy that I'll, I'll put a question mark on the end of it, but the book is called, the subtitle of the book is A Military History. And it is a military history. If you, if you read the book, and you all should, you should all buy it. For those of you watching online, buy it right now. For those of you sitting in the audience, buy it as soon as I'm done speaking. Um, And then Andy will sign it. And you see the book, and it clearly is a military history. It talks about uh, military officials, military leaders. It talks about the conduct of campaigns. But the one phrase that emerges repeatedly, or or the the idea that emerges repeatedly, is that the military operation, even those that were exceptionally well orchestrated and carried out are beside the point, or irrelevant, or pointless, or lacking in context. Um, many of you probably recognize this story, but it's, it's uh, Andy has it in the book, talks about uh, after the uh, Black Hawk Downs incident in Mogadishu in May of 1993. Uh, the journalist Mark Bowden who wrote about it, uh, in his account says, in a complex, difficult, and dangerous assignment, and despite terrible setbacks and losses and against overwhelming odds, the mission was accomplished. Andy writes. Bowden's claim invites the retort of the North Vietnamese colonel responding to an American officer's insistence at the end of the Vietnam War that, quote, you know, you never defeated us in battle, unquote. Was the American oblivious to the war's outcome? That may be true came the reply, but it's also irrelevant, right? And this is, so in other words, this is not a new phenomenon. It is not a new phenomenon for us to focus on the conduct of military operations and to measure them according to metrics that are easily counted, that is to say, numbers of casualties or numbers of of enemy uh, forces killed or, or disabled. So why a military history, Andy? Why why frame it in that way? Or is it precisely to, to make this point, to to make the point that focusing just on the military question is is beside the point, is irrelevant?
1: Do you mean why do? Yeah. Why why, why does why does the why 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 the American tendency to evaluate the outcome of military operations? In a, in a tactical or operational as opposed to political sense? Yes. That's an excellent question. I don't think I really know the answer, uh, except then to emphasize the point that, that it, it seems to me that the only uh, criteria for evaluating any military operation, any war, no matter how large or how small, how small is whether or not we achieve the political purposes that uh, inspired the war in the first place, uh, and and that is, it is on that point that I find uh, considerable fault with the conduct of America's war for the greater Middle East, because there is no question that uh, our soldiers have have certainly done all that was asked of them. There's no question that. In in specific circumstances, our soldiers performed brilliantly. I mean, if if you look at the conduct of Operation Desert Storm in 1991, uh, in my narrative, the second Gulf War, apart from screw-ups made by the senior officers at war's end, it was a brilliantly planned and executed operation. Uh, That said it was not, did not result in a decisive victory. It resulted in a military victory that left a myriad of political loose ends that then subsequently had the effect of drawing us more deeply into a military engagement. Remember that it's in the wake of Operation Desert Storm when Saddam Hussein defied the George Herbert Walker Bush administration's expectations that he would vanish from the scene, he survived, led to the enormously significant decision to maintain U.S. forces in the Gulf in the wake of Operation Desert Storm. Yes, the 500,000 troops deployed to to liberate Kuwait came home, but now a permanent occupation force Principally stationed where in Saudi Arabia uh, and therefore causing deep offense to some members of the uh, Muslim faith, comma, not least of all, this guy named uh, bin Laden, uh, led to unintended, unanticipated, and ultimately horrific consequences. Now, the point is not to say that... uh, either political leaders or military leaders sat down and, and somehow consciously chose uh, to set in motion a set of, 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 of actions leading to 9-11 or leading to this ever-deepening military involvement. It is to say that they were blind to uh, the, the situation that they were dealing with. And as so often happens in the history of, of, of warfare... They overestimated their ability to control and direct war. uh, And uh, consequences ultimately end up being exceedingly uh, tragic. Uh, So so that's a long-winded way of saying that that as citizens, we should push back against judgments made about our wars that depend on how many of the enemy were killed what objectives were taken uh, what 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 piece of terrain is surrendered and occupied we should pay far more attention to saying what's the political purpose that we intend to achieve uh, as a result of this undertaking and has that political purpose actually been satisfied all right so
0: i have one other quick follow-up to that and then i'll open up to the audience It's also true, however, that part of the reason why those political purposes are not spelled out clearly even in advance of the military operation is because frequently the political objects conflict with one another. They are inconsistent. Um, And this comes up time and time again. So even immediately after the first Gulf War, at least you had Brent Scowcroft admitting the reason for not pushing Saddam Hussein truly into the sea was because they wanted Iraq to remain as a counterweight to Iran. Um, and so my, my only really question, and I, I don't expect you to know the answer to this, and I don't know that anybody can know the answer to this, but one of the arguments for not lying on a regular basis is that it's not because it's a commandment and we tell our children not to lie to us, right? It's because that one lie begets another and another after that. And you, you keep telling more and more lies to cover the last set of lies you told to the point of, utter co- incoherence. I, 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 that's what I see emerging from this book, is that the the true political objectives were either so grandiose to, as to just defy you know, anyone's you know, capacity for, for recognizing, or clearly incompatible with other objectives that we're pursuing at the same time.
1: Well, I think that's, yes, a very good point. And I think that the, uh, the 2003 invasion of Iraq really illustrates the, the point in, in spades. The George W. Bush administration makes the argument that uh, we need to engage in preventive war uh, because of the threat posed by Saddam Hussein to us and to the rest of the world. Um, that was the cover story. Uh, I am persuaded, and I argue in the book, Uh, that the actual rationale for invading Iraq was because Iraq was weak, was vulnerable, and that the ambition, the ambitions of the George W. Bush administration in the wake of 9-11 were were so vast and so grandiose to to bring about a fundamental change in large parts of the Islamic world such that violent uh, anti-American jihadism would no longer uh, find, find roots there. So, so Iraq was step one of what was intended to be a multi-step uh, 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 military campaign. Alas, it never got beyond step one, uh, and that uh, overly ambitious strategy uh, rather quickly collapsed. But, but we were not let in on uh, the actual rationale for the Iraq war.
2: Yeah, I think part of it is that the purely pragmatic political sense of how do we sell something, recognizing that you can have some very strong opposition. You go back to 2003; there are fairly traditional conservatives like Dick Armey, then the majority leader of the House, who was very uncomfortable with some of this stuff, and they basically beat him over the head and said "weapons of mass destruction," and he kind of said, "Well, okay, I guess I guess that does it." that you know, a lot of these folks didn't believe in preventive war. They certainly didn't believe, well, this is a great way to drain the swamp or you know, a number of these other things. Paul Wolfowitz, Deputy Secretary of Defense, gave an interview, I think it was to Esquire afterwards, and when they asked him about justifications, he said, well, you know, weapons of mass destruction was the one thing all of us could agree on, that it was pretty hard to make a humanitarian case, you know, and people weren't really convinced. That, so how do you find the unifying factor where you want to get enough people on board? Well, you start kind of fibbing a little. And right. start, you know. And, and the point is, especially I think here in Washington, what matters most is winning the battle today, you'll deal with the problems tomorrow. Right. And what we found in the Middle East is actually those problems can be huge, and perhaps impossible to deal with, but politically the temptation is simply win the battle today, and then we'll worry about everything else later. All right.
0: All right, well, thank you all very much. Uh, and uh, we do have time for questions, uh, a couple ground rules here. Uh, wait for the microphone, that's chiefly for the benefit of those who are uh, watching online, but also for those of you in the audience who are maybe hard of hearing. Uh, so wait for the microphone. Please identify yourself and your affiliation if you have one. And uh, please keep your uh, comment in the form of a question, right? So like the Jeopardy rules. So. Uh, there on the aisle, go ahead, right there, sir. Wayne, yeah, go ahead.
3: Wayne Mary, the American Foreign Policy Council, uh, Dr. Besevich, would you comment on the proposition that your war for the Middle East has become, in the view of most people in the Islamic world, in fact, a war on Islam, and that if most people in the Islamic world think that America is at war with their faith, that in effect, we are? <laughs>
1: well, I'm, I'm, the honest answer is I'm not comp- competent to... Uh, uh, Explain what most people in the Islamic world think. Uh, my general impression, however, is that uh, few people uh, are persuaded that the U.S. military effort has been motivated by any particular concern for the well-being of people who live in the in the Greater Middle East, and and I think that. Some of the specifics of our actions, I mean, the horrors of Abu Ghraib, uh, not that Abu Ghraib was somehow some officially approved, undertaken policy, but but actions or episodes of that type almost surely uh, will have a poisoning effect on the way that uh, our military efforts are, are perceived, and not simply in Iraq, but... In more broadly in other parts of the Islamic world. But I don't know how most Muslims in that part of the
2: world think. I mean, I think there's certainly a much greater sense, say, on the street, if you want to call it that, versus among some of the elites, that the U.S. seems hostile or certainly indifferent to Muslims. I mean, I suspect the Saudi royal family doesn't worry so much about this. But I think a lot of folks, you know, much more practical especially on the the uh, kind of the, the wrong end of a drone or something else, would do so. And the U.S. has done an awful lot, or certainly U.S. officials have done an awful lot to hurt America's case. When you have somebody like Madeleine Albright, who very famously is UN ambassador, was on one of the Sunday shows, is asked, what about the half million babies who've been killed by the U.S. sanctions against Iraq? And we can argue about whether or not that number is accurate. And We can certainly talk about Saddam's Yeah, responsibility, but her comment was, quote, we think the price is worth it, unquote. That is not a very helpful image to present in the Muslim world. That while we may not be killing them because they are Muslim, that we certainly are not, uh, you know, we have no problem killing them even though they're Muslim.
0: Uh, uh, right there, sir, go ahead. I'm gonna try and alternate, Uh, there in the
2: middle. Uh, thank you. I'm John Utley with the American Conservative Magazine, from which Colonel Pacevich writes. Uh, since
3: many years, we appreciate very much. Uh, can you address further
2: the question in Washington of who benefits from all this, and uh, what about China? We need enemies. War is, is profitable, and you might say we're very successful at war, if you look at it as a business. Uh, <laughs> But what about China now that you hear voices in Washington, your sister foundation heritage, as China's a great threat to America? We have to have all sorts of new weaponry, and we're proposing to base B-1 bombers in Australia, presume, uh, and so on. Would so maybe you the
0: Chinese will help end the greater war mm-hmm. of the Middle East. And you know, how, how do you respond to John?
1: Well... Um, again one of one of my gripes about the war for the greater middle east is that i think it distracts attention uh from matters of greater moment and uh, the 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 evolving role of china in this new east asian order uh has to be at the very top of the of the, of the list of things that that uh, that we should care about uh, i'm not persuaded uh that the us chinese relationship that a hostile relationship is is foreordained. Uh, I have to say I'm I'm sort of in a position of wondering exactly how the the Chinese leadership defines its aspirations. What 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 role do they intend China to play in this as part of the regional uh, order? And and only then only once we are able to answer that question with. Some degree of of certainty, can we then say? Well, then, therefore, this is what the response, what 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 the U.S. response should be. Uh, so I'm 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 mightily concerned about those who would argue today that they know uh, that China is going to be a is going to be hostile uh, to the U.S. That China is going to be a problem uh, in Asia, uh, because that would seem to presume. Uh, that That ultimately some kind of war, whether hot or cold, uh, is going to be uh, inevitable. I think that kind of judgment is greatly premature uh, right here
0: in the middle, sir, right there
3: Thank you, I'm Bill klein. i'm a retired army physician. Um, you flirted with the idea of the follow the money principle, which I always find interesting to track things down. I'm just curious in your travels through the literature if you have any concept of the trillions of dollars we've, I guess, borrowed to pay for these wars, uh, what percentage of that, those dollars have actually left the United States? I would assume a fairly small percentage if you count the cost of building and supplying the troops and all the contractors and all the hardware and all the airplanes and everything else, but uh, the suitcases full of money are rather trivial compared to a trillion dollars. Do you have any idea what percentage of the actual cost of all these wars in the I guess narrow and broad sense has actually left the United States.
1: I mean it's a great question, and the answer is, I don't know. Doug, do you know?
2: No, I mean, you know, the second Gulf War is that you refer to that one. I mean, we actually got everybody else to pay for it. So I think we actually technically made money on you know, a profit on that one. I mean, I think that. I mean the challenge is not so much I think domestic interest, particularly profit directly from the spending. Uh, you know, in terms of the military, the, the problem, of course, is that in terms of human needs, you know, bombs don't actually you know, do much to meet basic human needs of Americans. So if you're building bombs you really don't need to use, you know, I mean, you really are wasting money. You could waste it on any number of things. You're wasting it there. It's simply military contractors happen to be the beneficiaries when you pay for them. You know, I mean, Certainly, China has uh, you know, bought a lot of America's debt, so I suppose you could argue that in terms of interest payments... Though even they, they're worried about our financial security, so they've cut back on some of that. I think the borrowing might be the heaviest aspect. Um, We typically don't... I mean, basing rights, I I don't think we're paying the Kuwaitis very much. I mean, it's not like the Kuwaitis need our money, so... I guess, but I mean, a
1: a little further comment, I'm not sure the issue really is, do the dollars leave the country or, or, or stay in the country? Really, it's a matter of of what what are we what are we getting for the dollars that are uh, expended i mean uh, i live in boston and even in boston we read articles about the uh, metro uh, which is i guess on the verge of collapse uh, and and that is one small example i think of what has become a pretty deep seated problem across the country that we don't uh, invest properly in in building, replacing, modernizing uh, infrastructure. Well, why don't we? I mean, arguably, uh, one answer to why we underinvest in infrastructure is that maybe we're overspending uh, on engaging in uh, wars that are uh, abroad, whether it's operational expenses, or whether it's uh, just building a pricey new weapon system. I'm all for we- new weapon systems. I'm all for having a strong military, but uh, perhaps there's a, once again, there's a need to have, uh, a, to critically examine uh, what we expect our military to do, uh, and therefore how big it needs and how pricey it needs to be, so that there could be some reallocation of the, of the nation's uh, resources to uh, address some domestic needs that, uh, I, I must say, in my own uh, view, uh, are, uh, are being uh, sadly ignored.
0: Uh, right there, sir. Go ahead. Uh, Dr. Basovich,
1: you
2: mentioned energy policy as kind of the driver to the Carter Doctrine. Do you think that the evolving you know, change in the you – know, we have new technology that's basically destroying the gasoline engine with the rise of the electric car – we'll be getting to be able to provide transportation very reasonably. Do you think with that future that we'll be able to actually end the uh, Carter Doctrine, or are we just kind of stuck in this kind of perpetual uh, war that nobody really knows why we're doing it?
1: Well, we we, we are stuck because, uh, at least as an observer, as a distant observer, uh, it seems to me that those who think about, U.S. national security policy don't take on board, are not uh, examining the implications of the changing security environment. I mean, I made a a smart alecky remark about defending uh, Canada and Venezuela rather than uh, Iraq and uh, and and Saudi Arabia, but but it is a fact. Uh, Even even setting aside uh, new energy technologies, even setting aside concerns about uh, climate change it is a fact that theres sufficient uh, oil and natural gas in the western hemisphere to sustain the American way of life for a long 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 time and that fact alone it seems to me ought then to result in people in the business of national security revisiting uh, our stakes in the in the Persian Gulf and in that in that broader region let me emphasize that doesn't mean that well I guess if we got oil and natural gas in Canada that we can quote-unquote walk away from the Middle East or ignore the Middle East or resort to isolationism or any of those sorts of notions that get trotted out. It does mean that we can can acknowledge the military failure that we have experienced over the course of three-plus decades and perhaps then think creatively about alternative ways of pursuing our interests in the region we do have interest in the region we have interests in we have an interest in the chaos and disorder being replaced with some semblance of stability it's just that dropping more bombs and sending the marines back in would appear to be unlikely uh, to lead to greater stability and therefore the question is well then what are the alternative ways to getting at that And that's where it seems to me that there tends to be a real absence of of creative thought uh, in the policy community.
2: Well, in fact, the justification for the Carter Doctrine disappeared with this Cold War. I mean, his uh, doctrine really was a limited argument that made much more sense than current policy, which is we can't allow the Soviet Union our hegemonic competitor to gain control over a resource critical to us. So it's much different to be, I mean, we have lived reasonably well with Iraqi oil entirely off the market with restrictions on Iranian oil. So, and I think the changing in the market in terms of fracking and everything else, it's a global energy marketplace, even before we get to electric cars, has very much transformed that marketplace and suggested something very different in terms of national security doctrines.
0: Uh, Right there on the, go ahead, sir.
2: My name is Fred Bonick. I'm from the Daily Ripple. I'm a gold
0: star dad. I lost a son in Afghanistan in 2010. I have another son who's had two deployments there, Lost, was hit with a hand grenade on one of them. He's a crew chief on a Black Hawk. I have a son who's a Marine and a daughter who's in the Navy. So uh, this is real personal to me. Uh, my question is, um, why is it so hard for the uh, right to decide that creating a new AUMF uh, would be important or maybe
1: cause a reason to uh, stop endless war. Why is, so the why is it is so on? difficult to get a new AUMF? Yeah. I think so. Well, uh, we're talking about authorization to use uh, military force. We're talking about sort of de facto declaration of war. Uh, we're talking about a de facto declaration of war uh, directed at ISIS. Uh, that would, would, would hostilities currently be undertaken under the auspices of the post 9/11 uh, AUMF. Of course, ISIS had nothing to do with 9/11; didn't even exist at that time. So, so the question is, why can't we have a new? Dec- why can't we have something akin to a declaration of war, which our Constitution calls for, assigns responsibility to the Congress? And I think the simple answer is because they're a bunch of cowards, and they don't want to. They, they don't want to be responsible. They don't want. They don't want to be. On the line as having authorized this further expansion and extension of this uh, war, uh, which which they date from 9/11. Again, I I date it from 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 1980, and so it's politically expedient uh, to say, well, no, 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 the post 9/11 AUMF is is still still suffices.
2: Republicans believe in original intent when it comes to everything except the war powers, and they're, they're very much liberal.
0: Uh go ahead, uh, up there.
3: Jim Lowen, author of the book, Lies My Teacher Told Me, a sociologist. Um, it seems like there's two candidates recently who differ from this bipartisan consensus. Uh, I'm talking about the Pauls as one, and Bernie Sanders as the other. Um, And I wonder if you have any comments on whether or not you you see them as truly different, and how their differences have hurt or
2: helped them politically.
1: Well, I was kind of hoping that Rand Paul would uh, would, would run as a principled uh, uh, intervention skeptic, uh, I, I may not have followed it as closely as I should have, but it seemed to me that uh, he uh, considerably watered down or compromised that view as he attempted to make himself into a, a mainstream candidate. That obviously didn't work. I think the you know Senator Sanders. Uh, uh, there's a problem here, I think, with Senator Sanders, and the, pro- the problem is that the, the focus of his candidacy is on some very important and specific domestic issues, you know, social justice, income uh, inequality, and that's what he bangs away at over and over and over again. The system is rigged. He hasn't had a lot to say about national security policy, at least as, as I have followed him. He gave that speech in Utah, a member of the speech where he said, god dang it my schedule won't let me come talk to apec uh so he stayed in utah and, and gave a bit of a foreign policy speech which which seemed to suggest that uh, he uh, didn't fully buy into uh some of the uh, platitudes that that passed for foreign policy thinking uh in in the, in the establishment but he, i i he hasn't really spelled out, to my mind, he hasn't really spelled out in specific and concrete terms why he will be different from somebody like uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, as a, you know, as a, frankly, a proponent of let's keep trying harder, doing what we've been doing.
0: Uh, go ahead, Gareth.
3: You got the mic. Uh, Gareth Porter, um, independent
1: uh, journalist. Um,
3: Andy, I want to thank you for your service uh, to. Speak the- up, Gareth to those of us who care about uh, these issues uh, over the years speaking truth to power. No one has done it with greater acuity or with as much acuity or or as much uh, force uh, uh, rhetorically than you have. Um, Broadly speaking, there are two ways to try to understand why the American public and political system have been so willing to tolerate this situation that you've described so well, one uh, is the one that I think you have uh, reflected uh, in, your, in your talk, which is the, uh, a cultural uh, explanation that is that the, uh, the US uh, uh, domin- uh, dominance in the world has given rise to a culture of exceptionalism and all the, uh, the, the cultural uh, notions that, that that brings about. The other one, and, and, uh, and I think that has been the most popular explanation for these, for these uh, wars. The other one, uh, however, uh, is one that you, I thought, were embracing in a book that you published a few years ago, which was to look at interest, the interest both individual and institutional of policymakers and uh, national security institutions over the years. So and, the question uh, is? And, and so my question is: uh, Really, did uh, have you abandoned that, or I mean, I'm just interested in what, what the process
1: was? No, I think I mean I think there's no, there's a number of fact, there's a number of reinforcing factors involved. Uh, so uh, I I do believe uh, that there is a cultural dimension here, and it's a cultural dimension of broad, very broadly speaking, Americans embracing a definition of freedom that I personally would view as uh, shallow. Uh, and uh, and 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 to some degree uh, uh, fraudulent, and, and and to the extent that that's an accurate depiction of our culture, people some people will certainly dispute it. Then we are all complicit. Uh, but 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 there are other factors as well. You were referring to my book Washington Rules, where it it does seem to me to be the case that there's a pattern of behavior on the part of the national security establishment, one that transcends partisan differences, uh, that, that looks to uh, self-perpetuation as a uh, fundamental goal. I mean, in, in, in the book, I, I spend at least a little bit of time t- reflecting on how quickly when the Cold War ended, you know, the, the, the Cold War seen at the time, at the moment that it ended, as a historic event of profound importance (laughs) resulted in the National Security Establishment almost immediately discovering yet new enemies uh, that provide a justification for sustaining habits and routines that had come into existence supposedly because of the imperatives of the Cold War. So that, that is another factor. There, there is a third factor, I mean, a, a third, or probably many more, a third factor I, that I argue about and mention in the book and I mentioned in previous uh, writings, and that's in our military system. I mean, our, 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 our reliance on a professional military has created a gap between the American people and American society, Many others, I think, have have noted this. I think that there is a, a a a growing grassroots appreciation that this gap exists and it is pernicious, uh, and, and that therefore there's a problem with our military system, the way we uh, we the, the way we we we, we uh, reach into the body of citizens. And, and recruit and, and acquire uh, those who will fight on our behalf. So there's all kinds of factors, I think, that are mutually in re, in re, uh, uh, reinforcing.
0: Uh, OK, uh, right there. Oh, uh, okay. go ahead, sir. You just got the mic, and uh, then you, you, ma'am.
3: Thank you.
1: I'm Bob Gersoni. Thank you both for your exceptional presentations this morning. Uh, quick question. Could both of you comment on the Israel factor in your analysis?
0: Go ahead. Oh. Uh, I, I don't think he was talking to me. But. No. I,
1: I, uh, a, uh, Israel does not determine U.S. policy toward the greater Middle East. Uh, and and uh, I'm not implying that you suggested that. But, but in some quarters uh, of our society, there's a perception that somehow that is the case. I think that that's a dangerous and pernicious idea. Uh, it's equally uh, wrong uh to assert that the United States and Israel are these two closest of friends no daylight between us standing side by side together uh you know forever the fact of the matter is that in exceedingly important and fundamental ways the interests of the United States have diverged from the interests of the state of Israel uh and 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 the problem is that it's politically incorrect uh in our society to say that out loud, acknowledge it, and then explore the implications. Uh, so there is a great need, I think, for candor about the reality of the U.S.-Israeli relationship. Candor doesn't mean, nor am I suggesting in any way, that candor somehow means that we should abandon Israel, uh, but we ought to recognize that, that our interests and theirs differ. Uh, and, and, and where those differences occur, it is wrong. For the United States simply to defer to the state of Israel or to pretend that we're deferring to the state of Israel? And mostly I'm referring here, of course, to things like the never-ending expansion of settlements on the occupied territories.
2: I mean, Israel ensures, I think, an American interest and involvement in the Middle East, irrespective of energy, oil, and other things. I mean, I think it's a very important factor. I think that what it tends to do is skew some of the arguments and skew some of the involvement. That is, it means that there are going to be very strong advocates of Israel who are very concerned, say, about Syria, as much because of the potential impact on Israel as for civil war purposes or other sorts of things. Lebanon, I mean, Ronald Reagan ran into that, the whole question of how do you respond in Lebanon. Part of, the actually, American involvement had to do with the Israeli invasion, the aftermath, these sorts of things. So I do think that it has an impact, and I think Andy's absolutely right. It's far better to be transparent and disentangle and recognize. And I think what's critical here is not that the U.S. and Israel have nothing in common or no reasons for friendship, but rather it's important to recognize as separate nation-states we in fact do have different interests. And it's very important for the U.S. to recognize that and focus on kind of, you know, in terms of policy when it acts, and you know, what the issues are in terms of Israel and for other factors.
0: Uh, yes, sir. Right there, you've got the yeah, and then uh, then you, ma'am, the front.
3: I'm Mark Wall, a former U.S. State Department, now affiliated with the University of Wyoming. Um, could you comment on two criticisms of the Obama administration's Middle East policy? One was not pushing enough to get an agreement to keep U.S. troops uh, in Iraq. And secondly, not following through on the red line in Syria.
1: Well, I mean, the, 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 the charge on uh, the, the charge against the Obama administration in not getting the SOFA, uh, the Status of Forces Agreement, it, I think is almost entirely a partisan charge. It 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 it, it, it is made by uh, Republicans or more broadly, people on the sort of the militarized right. Uh, to uh, fasten blame for the subsequent course of events uh, in Iraq on Obama. Uh, one might ask, if the SOFA was so damn important, why the George W. Bush administration uh, failed to negotiate uh, the SOFA while, uh, while uh, George W. Bush was the president. Uh, I think the actual answer is that, however important it may have been, the government of Iraq had no desire uh, to sign up to the permanent occupation of uh, Iraqi territory by U.S. forces. Uh, so the, the putative sovereignty uh, that we had uh, conferred on Iraq re- allowed the, the government of Iraq to say, Ain't interested. Uh, I think that's that's what happened. What was the the second one about was, the red line in Syria? Ah, I mean, I was amateur hour. I mean, it was. Uh, I think I think it was uh, a, a, a bungled policy. Uh, now, the then the then the critique is well, gosh, there goes American credibility forever. And I think that's a bogus argument. Uh, I mean, we we have we have we have made worse blunders than not intervening uh, in uh, the Syrian civil war, and somehow American credibility. Uh, uh, survived. And I, I refer you to the Vietnam War, uh, which, which, which for the, the latter half of the Vietnam War, one of the principal arguments for why we needed to persist, this is about the time Mike Nardotti was serving there, the argument was we need to persist in this misbegotten enterprise, because if we fail, American credibility is going to be damaged. Well, again, guess what? We lost, and somehow or other, American credibility survived. I think it was George Kennan who once made the argument that if you're concerned about your credibility, the most important thing to do is don't do stupid things. Uh, that, that credibility comes from having a reputation of acting prudently and wisely in pursuit of uh, appropriately defined uh, interests. So it was stupid, but I don't really think it's that big a deal.
2: Yeah, the Maliki government did not believe it could get parliamentary approval for a SOFA. We will not put U.S. forces in another country, especially a country like that, without protection for our service personnel. George W. Bush could not get a SOFA when he had maximum leverage. Every American combat soldier there. And he agreed to a withdrawal timetable. So the notion that suddenly it's all Obama's fault, I find striking. That it, you know, Why did not George W. Bush, who started the war, carried out the war, put Maliki in power? You know, if he could not get this, it seems slightly outrageous to suddenly blame the next guy. And uh, you know, to my mind on the, the red line, look, it shows why you sh- shouldn't make stupid promises that aren't in America's interest. But the US presidents have spent 20 years telling us, we will not allow North Korea to build nuclear weapons. Guess what? I mean, the point is, other countries make judgments based on our promises, I think, based on our interest. And they realize some promises are just stupid. And if we don't live up to them, they understand that. But they realize if somebody attacks us, we will attack them back.
0: All right, last question right here. Sorry, I'm good, sir. Go ahead, sir. I think so. Speak up, sir. Speak up. Who's, yeah, is there anyone responsible last question on accountability Andy. this comes up a lot of times in the book
1: Well I'm not a lawyer uh, so I, I, I again I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm competent to uh, answer the question
2: Well there was a time a Sp- there was a time Spain might have tried to uh, you know, arrest an American official I mean there are some Europeans who want to grab Henry Kissinger you know the pro- extraterritoriality I think there's an extraordinary problem with asserting that. And I think we want to be very careful living in a world where we can kind of just decide which, you know, war crime do we think is a bad one? Who do we want to grab, and who's vulnerable, and who's not? Uh, and unfortunately, there there isn't even political accountability. I mean, if we don't have political accountability, the likelihood of legal accountability, I think, is a pipe dream.
0: Let me, let me, close, on, let me close on this point. Uh, Andy brings this up in the book several times. After, because this is a military history and because he focuses on the conduct of military operations and the, and the leaders who are responsible for conducting military operations, after military disasters, there are often inquiries. And many times the military officers are held accountable. So you think of the Cobar Towers incident, or the Cole, or the Roberts, that that when there are attacks on American uh, servicemen, uh, that the military commanders are held accountable. But we never question the rationale for the mission in the first place. And that's the deeper accountability that we should have in this country, which we unfortunately don't. So on this point, on that unhappy point, all right, let me say again, um, this is a terrific book. You all should buy it. We have enough copies, I think. Uh, Andy would be happy to sign it, I'm quite sure. Yes. Good answer. Uh, with that, please join us uh, on the second floor of the George M. Yeager Conference Center for continued discussion over lunch. Thank you all very much.